Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Amidst the lush green meadows and gently rolling hills of the bucolic English countryside, in a shed there podcasts a man. Not a nasty, dirty, wet shed filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy shed with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It is David Crowther of the History of England's Shed, and that means comfort. Or this is how I imagine it anyway. I don't really know. Or, I should say, I didn't rightly know. Before I sat down with David for a delightful discussion about his amazing podcasts, The History of England and The History of Anglo-Saxon England, which are the Agora Podcast Network's featured podcasts for the month of March 2016. Our talk ranged far and wide, and I'll share that with you in just a few moments. But first, as is customary, I want to give you a brief overview of a podcast that my colleague, Royfield Brown, in the last episode of The Exchange, rightfully referred to as a juggernaut. The history of England is a force of nature. As of this recording, it's spanned over 170 episodes thus far, and it's incredibly popular. And like Carrie Yule's classic retort as the title character in Mel Brooks's film Men in Tights, when asked what separates him from other Robin Hoods, when it comes to English history podcasts, David can rightly assert that he can speak with an English accent. Not that that is particularly important in terms of research or scholarship, but as an American familiar with a distinctly different accent and differently phrased dialect of the language, there's something incredibly spellbinding for me in hearing an Englishman speak of England as he would to another Englishman, which leaves me anticipating that moment when they forget that I'm listening and break into iambic pentameter, as I suspect they do when they think they're alone amongst themselves. But I kid, and I digress. David's popularity likely has little to do with his accent, but rather with the undeniable truth that he is connected with his audience on a deeply personal level, and has achieved a rarefied level of engagement with them that few podcasters can claim. He has done this largely through the liberal application of wit, subtle humor, and engaging storytelling that showcases his direct, unpretentiously honest manner of communicating as he instructs listeners about how a small part of a small island, 
eventually coalesced into a people who would set forth and establish an empire upon which the sun never set. But the details of how that happened are for David to explore when he gets to them, in roughly 2024 by his own estimate. That's about enough prologue from me, but before playing the interview, I just want to make you aware that this interview was very nearly lost into that void where data disappears to in the computer age when technological disasters strike. Luckily, like archaeologists reassembling a 3,000-year-old clay pot, David and I were largely able to reconstruct our original conversation and lash the disparate shards of audio together into something mostly resembling it. I think we've polished it up into something listenable and enjoyable, but if there's one or two, maybe a few spots where something seems a little out of place, or if a transition isn't as smooth as you'd like, we do apologize in advance, and reassure you, it's not as smooth as we'd like it to be either. However, we won't let perfect be the enemy of good, and beg you to consider this whole episode very nearly didn't happen. So, with that caveat, here you go. David Crowther, welcome to The Exchange. Well, hello, Tom. Very thrilled to have you today. You are, um, well, you are very well known in the history podcast community. Yeah, Tom, you're flattering um, me. I think, yeah. You are podcast famous. Well, nobody's asked my autograph yet, Tom, I have to say. I'm sure if people hear you talk in a cafe, they just turn around and say, oh my God, are you David Crowther? <laughs> that is a lovely thought, I must admit. Uh, maybe, maybe one day I'll get chased down the street. But I wouldn't hold your breath for the moment. Well, hopefully we can help get you there. All right, so uh, I want to hit the ground running right now uh, and ask you a big existential question right off the bat. Who are the English? And now, Tom, that is a great question. Who indeed? Well, I think the first thing I'd say, actually, is that if you went back a few decades and looked at Anglo-Saxon uh, England history, the received wisdom was that the English were... Um, created from this big Germanic uh, migration, uh, the tribes that came over and uh, fought the Britons and pushed them out um, so that they went to Devon and Cornwall and, and Wales and uh, Scotland and Brittany and so on <clears throat> uh, and were completely replaced by uh, these Anglo-Saxons who became the English. That's one of the things, actually, one of the reasons why I redid my, uh, my Anglo-Saxon England podcast because... Uh, that's our view about that has changed very much, and now it's uh, it's very much considered that it was more of an assimilation than it was uh, a replacement. And that's interesting, I think, because I think it points to one of the problems of uh, you know who are the English? Uh, they've got uh, English identity was very much bound up with uh, the British Empire, with the idea of Britain. Uh, now that the idea of Britain, I think, has been under a, a lot of threat since throughout the 20th century as the British Empire ended and so on, the English now have this trouble that they don't really know who they are. And I think there's a real crisis of identity. In the end, uh, I would say that I'll give you a really, really rubbish answer and say that the English are whoever believes themselves to be English. It's interesting that... Uh, uh, in Anglo-Saxon England, people talked about the king of the English. They didn't talk about a territory. Uh, they talked about what it was to be part of a group, a community. And I think that's the way it is now. Uh, I don't think there's any way of racially defining uh, the English. I don't think there's even language doesn't really help in this particular example. So the English are who the English believe to be. And that is probably the most rubbish answer you'll ever get. I mean, I certainly appreciate that. Um, and 
For your podcast, you know, the history of England, obviously right now it's not an issue. You know, England is a, a separate kingdom from Scotland and Wales. And that's going to be changing down the road, obviously, as it becomes Great Britain and then later the United Kingdom. How are those developments going to affect your story? Ah, now I can reveal to you, actually, Tom, that I'm worried about this quite a bit right from the beginning. Um, because I wanted, I was really clear that what I was not going to do was something called the History of Britain, which turned out not to actually be about Britain, but to be about the English with a few, you know, a few side episodes every now and again about Scottish and Welsh and Irish history. So I was determined not to do that. So I very consciously called it the history of England. But the trouble is, of course, that, uh, you know, we get to a stage and we're past it now already that um, when England, of course, uh, conquers Wales, that's already happened, 1282. Um, and in 1707, we'll have the Act of Union between Scotland and England. And, uh, of course, our relationship becomes much more bound up and it's much more difficult to have just the history of England. Uh, especially if you're having a political history. So all I can do is apologise to, uh, to Wales, apologise <laughs> to Scotland. Uh, but again, I was determined uh, not to shortchange, I think, the Welsh and the Scots in the quality of the, the history they get. Because certainly, if you want to learn about the most vicious politics in the world, you have to look at early medieval Scottish politics was just a hoot. So I accept the problem. Not much I can do about it except keep apologising. Now, for people who are listening, uh, who, who don't know that exquisite anxiety when it comes to launching a podcast for the first time, you know, it might be informative to talk a little bit uh, about how self-critical we podcasters can be, about our early episodes specifically. And, and I think anyone who podcasts understands where I'm coming from with that question. But now, I think you've done something incredibly unique. You have essentially launched a new supplemental podcast as this great, this great mea culpa, this great apology for your, the, how you handled the Anglo-Saxon period uh, of England at, at the very beginning of the history of England. So you want to talk about how you came to this decision to launch an entirely new podcast? Tom, I would lie awake. It ate at me. The pain... Thinking back, the Anglo-Saxons actually are my favourite bit of English history. Anglo-Saxons closely followed by the English Civil War. And I've done such a rubbish job. Um, I mean, actually, funnily enough, when I launched the podcast originally, I wasn't worried or anxious at all, actually, because I never for a moment, never for a moment, did I think that anybody would be bothered to listen. I'd heard Mike Duncan, The History of Rome. Um, I was in a job at the time where I had, you know, weeks of furious activity, which where you didn't have time to breathe, but then weeks of uh, actually plenty of time. So I thought, right, I'd better do something, something useful. Well, I'd do this. And I never expected anybody except my mother to listen. Actually, my mother doesn't listen. But, you know, I never expected anybody except her to listen. Uh, so actually, I wasn't very anxious. And, I, and if I think back, actually, and was give advice to anybody, I would say, take yourself seriously from the beginning. Because actually, I made some decisions at that point, which I've now had to unwind about things like logos and all that sort of thing. Anyway, uh -huh. take yourself seriously. If you're going to do it, do it right. Anyway, so I think I didn't invest the, the amount of time that I should have done. Um, and consequently, um, I, used, I just used a bunch of books that I already have on the shelf from my degree 30 years ago or whatever. Um, and things... And that actually would have been okay in many, many stages of English history, to be honest. 
But funnily enough, in Anglo-Saxon England, for the migration period in particular, uh, the history has changed a lot. And I referred to it a few minutes ago that this, you know, a few decades ago, the picture was driven by place name studies. And in place names, you know, the, the, the survival of British names uh, is absolutely tiny. Even in the West, it's absolutely tiny. And this led people to think, well, it must have been a complete... Uh, you know, genocide, um, complete wipeout of the Britons. And Gildas and the, the, the texts of the time also gave that impression that the, the, the Britons fled before the ravening army. Now with a whole load of DNA evidence, much more archaeology, we know that really can't have been the case, that it, there's no way that uh, there were enough Germanic invaders to completely replace the Britons. So this ate at me, Tom. I lay awake at night, tossing and turning and sweating and, and, and worrying about what I'd done, the terrible thing I'd done to my, my favourite Anglo-Saxons. So I just had to redo it. And actually, now I'm through the migration period and into offer, um, actually I'm beginning to catch up with a point where I'd got better. And um, actually, it's not so bad. So I've got a bit of a dilemma now about how much time and effort I spend on Anglo-Saxon England. But I am coming out to Alfred and, you know, I'd love to do him again. And I do just love the Anglo-Saxons. So, hey. That comes through very clearly. Um, and and I, I'm enjoying uh, the – well, I enjoy both of your podcasts. But, um, you know, uh, you, you can you can definitely tell that, you know, there's, there's a special connection with you and the Anglo-Saxons. Um, kind of tangential to, you know, where you chose to, you know, start your podcast, I did notice that – Outside of some supplemental things here and there, uh, you, you really chose to sort of exclude the pre-Roman Britons and uh, Roman Britannia at all in your chronological narrative. Um, you know, what, ah, is there a reason for uh, that? Actually, I wish you hadn't asked that because it means I've been found out and I'm, gonna, I'm going to upset people all over the place. Because uh, I love the history of Rome. You know, I absolutely love Roman history. Fantastic stuff. But I can't think of a nice way of saying this. Pre-Roman Britain, I just find inutterably dull. What can I say? Nothing else I can do than that. Uh, Pre-Roman Britain, really dull. And indeed, Roman Britain, really dull. I do not know why. Actually, I have to say that in redoing the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, uh, the economic thing, the economic side of the, the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire going and all the rest of it, that was fascinating, actually. But sorry, just found it a bit boring. I... Hey, that that's a completely fair, that's a completely fair answer. So I can't dispute your your brutal, blunt honesty. Now, pardon the pun coming off the Roman Empire, but you have legions of endearing fans. But um, bump, boom, and if you will, Tish. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you have a very active and uh, engaged Facebook group, I I've noticed. You know, lots of very well, well-spoken, assumingly well-read, and probably very good-looking fans um, who adoringly refer to you as the bloke in the shed um, because this is where you record your podcasts. And so it's nice to have your own little recording studio. And, and I think people might want to know um, a little bit about this, you know, mecca of edification are you sitting in a place surrounded by yard tools and lawnmowers or is this some type of tolkien-esque hobbit hole which of course means comfort does your little studio have all the comforts of home could you possibly give us the grand tour oh okay uh the shed so actually from one respect the shed's a little bit embarrassing because 
the shed is actually not the kind of beautiful thing you might imagine. I think everybody in their minds has this, you know, this idea of a lovely old wooden shack that goes back generations, which, as you say, is surrounded by tools and old bits of pot. And, and there's me, the sun filtering through the window, and uh, there's me sort of doing the thing. Um, and actually, it's not like that at all, because actually the, the shed, as it were, is made of brick, which is, first of all, you know, a big failing in the shed. Um, it is, I actually converted half of my garage. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, so I can no longer get cars in it, obviously, because um, it's too short. Uh, but half of it is where all the stuff goes in our life. And the other half is where I have my shed. Uh, and actually, it's super comfortable. It's got, you know, the I, we put plaster on the walls and we um, it's got some pictures and uh, it's got an old guitar that I tried to play and uh, only got as far as uh, Mull of Kintyre and didn't get any further than that uh, because, um, oh, why would that be? Because I have no talent. Um, and it's got lots of history books now, of course, a whole load of history books, a computer. I've got a microphone on the uh, on the desk. Um, and we've got Doris. Doris here. Let me introduce you to Doris. Doris, Tom, Tom, Doris. Uh, Doris is a tailor's dummy that I picked up uh, cheap from a um, a yard sale. So actually, uh, it's all really comfy. And I'm sorry about that because, A, it's not pretty. Metal windows, brick, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and B, it's not really a shed. It's a converted garage. So I feel I've failed everybody. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, shed. It is a shed. Uh, it qualifies as shed. It's in the garden. Um, it's separate from the house. It is the place where I escape, um, and it's my domain. So might be ugly, but it's mine. Wow. Well, th- I think that was a grand little tour. Um, uh, let- let's turn back to, to to England, as it were. Now, thus far in your story, it seems fair to say that the monarchy is really the most important institution that's crept up. Uh, in the history of England. Your story hasn't yet reached the era of an ascendant parliament. So, so far, and your opinion in general. So who's the greatest and most important British monarch? And are those necessarily one in the same person? 
Do you know, I always feel slightly guilty when asked that question because it's kind of like, it's a question that's a bit like, it's a bit like sugar. Uh, you love it when you're eating it and you can't get enough of it and uh, all the rest of it. And then when it's finished, you feel slightly guilty because, of course, um, and this is one of the problems I think we face in doing medieval history is, you know, history isn't all about monarchs and all the rest of it. Uh, there's a whole, um, and I think people are very interested in, in much more, much broader canvas and a much wider range of people that I'd love to cover. But actually, but at that stage I'm at, uh, there's relatively little. Uh, it's a bit about ecclesiastical uh, folks and there's a little bit more now, of, uh, more records. But essentially, what you hear about is the monarchs and their goings on and everybody focuses on that. So I kind of feel a need to apologise again. Don't know how many times I've apologised. Uh, but there's another apology, that it would be nice to get away from monarchs. But having said that, it's a question we all love. So... I would say there's, you know, there's quite a few candidates for the, the greatest uh, monarch. So Henry II. Henry II was um, uh, an amazing man who, who bought uh, all those Aquitanian lands through his glamorous mar marriage to the fantastic Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, who, who rewrote the laws, who, um, who turned the mm -hmm. chaos of the, the anarchy under Stephen and his mother Matilda into you know, a, a strong peace, and, uh, despite his... Um, his argument with Thomas Beckett. So there's Henry II. There's Henry V, um, said by uh, the Professor MacFarlane um, as possibly the greatest man ever to sit on the throne of England. Don't agree, I have to say, but there you go, the possibility. Edward III, glorious, the, you know, the, the chivalry of Edward III, the, the great battles of Poitiers and Cressy, those enormous victories over the French, uh, you know, tiny England against the, the greatest nation in, uh, uh, in Christendom. And we, you know, uh, gave him a spanking, uh, and the round table and all that sort of thing that Edward III loved and, and talked about. Uh, or Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, of course, uh, you know, amazing, um, amazingly successful, beat the Armada, bit of luck in that, but, you know, you know, you make your own luck, um, and, uh, you know, managed to balance all the incredibly conflicting uh, currents of English uh, political and social life, um, uh, that w which later James I and James and Charles I completely failed to do. Or Victoria, you know, longest-serving uh, monarch, or was until recently, um, you know, the glories of uh, 19th century Britain and the Industrial Revolution. So I think those are a few of the candidates. But there is, in fact, but one answer. And uh, other people might like to argue and might have alternative views, but um, just so that you know, uh, they're all wrong. Uh, the greatest monarch is, without doubt, Alfred the Great. Here is a man who um, uh, here is a man who inherited a nation on the edge of extinction. The Vikings had invaded; they had carried everything before them. The Anglo-Saxons had no idea what to do. They had no idea how to fight them. Every nation had fallen. The North had gone. Big, powerful Mercia, the the leading uh, kingdom of uh, Anglo-Saxon England, had fallen. Uh, the East Anglians uh, had fallen. Wessex was on its knees. Uh, here is a man who got to the very edge of extinction, sitting in a hut, cooking, would you believe, cooking in a marsh. A uh, bunch of followers around him, really not very many. It was all over. And here's a man who brought it back. And here's a man, not only that, and that would be great, but it wasn't just that. It's the fact that while everything around him burned, while everything in him was going belly up, he thought about more than just beating the Vikings in battle. 
He knew that lasting peace could come if these two communities shared the same values, so he was relentless in converting them to Christianity. However cynically they did it initially, in the end, that's what worked. He promoted learning, he promoted writing. He understood that there was more at stake here than just a few battles. What was at stake here was the future of the English people. And he had that vision. He had a breadth of vision, a breadth of understanding that I think is quite breathtaking. There is one proviso. Uniquely, Alfred controls our image of him. He controls the propaganda around his reign. Uh, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was probably set up by him. Uh, he commissions a life uh, from a Welsh priest called Asser. So that's the only thing you've got to think about, is that with Alfred, how much of our understanding of him is actually driven by what he wants us to think. But hey, in itself, that's pretty clever. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, you know, my rather limited understanding of uh, uh, of English history um, as a colonial, as you'd call me, you know, uh, alternative Alfred, words are actually available. The clear choice: traitor, rebel, a rebel. I, I like to think of myself as that. <laughs> so uh, I think with a big institution such as the monarchy, and with so many candidates, you know, competing for the title of greatest. Is there a, a clear winner for the title of Worst Monarch? Worst Monarch. So, same comment I made earlier. Feels slightly dirty answering the question, but there are, again, a few candidates. So, we have Bad King John. First name Bad. Gotta be a giveaway. Edward II. Lovely, lovely bloke. If you met him today, probably, you'd like to go down the pub with him, share a pint. Gentle sort of man. Uh, obviously very good in bed, apparently. Uh, but... Absolutely hopeless as a monarch. Just rubbish. And hmm. because he's so rubbish and because everybody gives him such a hard time, falls in with a bad lot, tries to kill everybody, gets chucked out. I summarise for effect, obviously. Richard II, incredibly autocratic, thinks he's ordained by God, ideas way above his station, and we're not having that in England, OK? Uh, one of the kings, actually, though, which doesn't often come up in these lists, gets seen as a sort of wibbly-wobbly... Not bad, not terrible, um, not brilliant either, King, is Henry III. And he is seriously rubbish, actually. He is surprisingly poor. So he always ought to be on these lists. And, of course, Charles I, English Civil War, fails to understand the needs of his subjects. Divine right of monarchs. Sorry, not having that here. You have that in France, if you like, not having it here. Hang on, Ethelred the Unready. How could I forget Ethelred the Unready? A real stinker. A real stinker. Of those people, bad King John, obviously very unpopular. There's a lovely story about King John eyeing up the courtiers' wives. And if he fancied one of them, he would essentially use his position to force himself on these women. They all hated it. Nothing they could do about it. They were all scared of him. Anyway, this happens with one Hugh de Neville and his wife Joan. And John obviously, you know, takes a bit of a shine to Joan, and this goes on for quite a while. And then there's this lovely entry in the uh, pipe rolls, because John had a dreadful love of money. He's always trying to get money. And Joan pays him 200 chickens in order to be able to spend one night with her husband. There's something quite funny about that, isn't there? So any women listening out there might decide to themselves to rate their husband in chickens. <laughs> How many chickens is your husband worth? I've put that question to you. So of those, I would probably pick Ethelred the Unready. 
So, David, where does this ride end for you? Um, have you given that any thought, or is it an open question? You know, because I, for one, would love to hear your, your Churchill impression. On the Churchill impression first, just can't do it. Completely lost my mojo. I did it a couple of times, went rather well, and now I cannot imagine how Churchill ever spoke. So I'm ducking Churchill impressions madly. As far as where does it end is concerned... Um, I when I started, I was very determined to do 1901 because there's so much on the 20th century. You know, really, would anybody want to hear anything more? And would anybody want to hear it from me? So I've I've been pretty, you know, pretty sure about 1901. Um, but I don't know. We'll see. I did a little calculation recently, actually, which suggested that I will get to 1901 in about 2024. So we're going to see how that goes. And when I get to 2024, if I'm still alive, which is, you know, 50-50, then we'll see. Oh, we don't want to hear that. Well, who knows? Maybe you'll break the statistical model. Take it as it comes. All right, so David, I'm going to ask you one last question, and uh, maybe a little contentious, a little contemporary. So Parliament has been the, the dominant power in the United Kingdom for a while now. Um... What do you think the future is for the monarchy? You know, does it really have a place in the 21st century? Are there any signs that a Republican movement is going to carry the day and the Windsors will be the last dynasty? What's the future of that venerable institution that's driven so much of your podcast? Well, I hate to say it, Tom. I mean, I really hate to say it. But actually, the monarchy appears to be as strong as it ever was. And in fact, in a funny sort of way, in a very different form, maybe stronger than it's ever been. And there is absolutely no sign of us getting rid of it, which is a disaster. Much as I love history and the heritage and all that sort of thing, um, it seems to be an utterly absurd format of government for the modern world. And I am a declared Republican. And personally, I think we should get rid of it all. However... I am in a really, really small minority. That's one thing. And the other thing, actually, is that it isn't that big a question, really. You know, it's um, I I think I think we should get rid of the monarchy because I think it is an outmoded system and uh, continues to encourage a class structure. But to be honest, it's not a biggie. And therefore, I fully expect the monarchy to survive for quite a lot longer indefinitely unless they mess it up. You know, if they do something stupid, it's theirs to lose, as they say in the sporting world. Plus, I have an apology to make to everybody out there. Uh, As I say, I'm a Republican. I'm firmly convinced we should get rid of the monarchy, much as I love them individually. You know, uh, whatever. (laughs) Um, So there we go. Those are my principles. And then we had the royal marriage. And that was a nightmare. That was an absolute nightmare. I could not believe it. I was all ready to be cynical and nasty and say horrid things. And, you know, there was a lump in my throat. I was welling up. I was glued to the television. I thought it was great. I was swept away in the mood. You know, we were having, you know, parties and all that sort of thing. Um, and I'm ashamed of myself. I'm, I'm ashamed, Tom. I am, you know... So I would like to say to everybody out there, every other Republican that shares my views, I'm really Mm -hmm. sorry. I suppose, just to be serious for a moment, it did. the thing about the monarchy now is that it is non-contentious. It is non-party political, at least. 
And so it does have that ability to bring people together over something which is completely non-party political. And that's quite rare and that's quite difficult. And that is quite nice. But anyway, I'm sorry. I am sorry. Well, with that heartfelt apology, David Crowther, I want to thank you for coming and being part of the exchange. Um, Very much enjoyed our conversation today. And uh, I'd wish you the best of luck with your podcast, but I think that's completely unnecessary. (laughs) It's already a massive success. Thank you, Tom. And clearly you've got excellent taste in podcasts, so I'd just like to tell you that I love you very much. Wonderful. Well, David, I've taken up enough of your time, so have a wonderful day. Okay, folks, that's it. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, you can follow the History of England on Facebook and Twitter and at the website historyofengland.typepad.com. Also, make sure you stay up to date with all that Agora has to offer by following the Agora Podcast Network on Facebook, on Twitter at Agora Podcasts, or Reddit, as well as our website www.agorapodcastnetwork.com. And do be sure to subscribe to the Agora Podcast Network feed so you don't miss any of the great original podcasts Agora plans on rolling out in the next few months. Alright, my thanks again to David Crowther for all his help in making this possible, and of course, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Daly, host of American Biography, and I hope to talk to you again soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.